Welcome to Avian Bone Syndrome Podcast, Episode 2, Photography and Ethics. Hello, and again, welcome to the second episode of Avian Bone Syndrome Podcast. Before we get to today's topic, I would like to spend a word to thank every single person who listened to episode one. I actually had more listeners than I had anticipated, which means that someone must have passed the word along, which is great. And I would like to thank every single person who actually got back to me and told me what they thought about the podcast. I got positive comments and... I don't know if they were just being nice, probably, I don't know, (laughs) but thank you. This is why I'm doing episode two. I wanted to do this before, but as a few of you may know, I've been sick with a cold, so I'm uh, feeling much better now. I'm still alive. I didn't die from it, so we can move on. I would like to say one thing before we move to today's topic. And it is that several people have told me that half an hour is the perfect length for a podcast episode. And I agree to that. However, episode one being around half an hour was just a lucky coincidence. It was not planned. It was just the way it came to be. So while I would like to keep that a standard with this podcast, I cannot promise that. Because I may get more verbose or I may get less verbose about something. So I urge you to just (laughs) be patient with me when it comes to that. Now, those of you who know me know that I've always been passionate about photography, and I really always have. I remember playing with my father's Pentax ME Super film camera when I was was a kid. However, it was not until 2002 that I became serious about it for one very simple reason, because digital cameras became affordable and made photography affordable. Um, Anyone who's used film will know that film is expensive to buy, to process, to print, and you just don't have the freedom you have today of taking photos or experimenting with photos the way you did. Also because you had to record your settings for every single picture, and then you had to match them when you got the prints back. Today, your camera does everything for you. It records more things that you're interested in in every single picture you take. So that makes the learning process much easier than it ever was with film. So around 2002, I started buying digital cameras, and I used them until I outgrew them. So I didn't just jump to the greatest camera I could afford. I actually bought what I could afford, but something that matched my level of proficiency with photography. And that's something that I urge everyone to do. Too many people today just buy the most expensive camera they can afford, and they use it in automatic mode. And that's really not a good idea. I mean, you're just wasting money on something you cannot use. It's like learning to drive and getting a Ferrari. You can do that if you can afford it, but what's the point? You're not going to be able to use it to its full potential. So, Anyway, my passion for photography just kept growing over time, and I still do that. I still outgrow things before I replace them, whether they're lenses or bodies or accessories even. I even upgraded filters because I had outgrown them. And of course, I talk about photography with a lot of people. I met a lot of photographers online, in person, stayed in touch, became friends with them, and inevitably, when you meet someone through photography, that becomes a very common topic. But generally speaking, a lot of people ask me about photography because they seem to enjoy my pictures, which I'm thankful for. <laughs> That's why I do that. And there seems to be a little misunderstanding on what constitutes 
acceptable photo editing, which is why I'm making this episode today. Now, there are many schools of thought about this topic, and I would just like to say flat out, there is no right or wrong when it comes to this. What I mean is that what's acceptable to me may not be acceptable to you, or vice versa, simply because photography is a very personal thing, it's very subjective. Even looking at the same picture, different people will have different reactions, different emotions, different approaches to things. Not to mention making photos, because different photographers will take different approaches to the same image. So this is very subjective all around. I'm just going to throw in a few ideas so that everyone can come up with their own opinion on this. Before we get into the core of the matter, we have to trace back what photography is and how it came to be, because I think that's fundamental to the whole topic. You cannot discuss ethics without knowing what you're talking about. So the first thing we have to talk about is, what is photography? Now, the ones of you with a more engineering approach to things will say it's a technique, which it is. The word photography itself comes from Greek, and it means recording light or writing with the light. That's exactly what it is. You need light to take a photo. As anyone who's used even a cell phone in low light and found pictures to be blurry. Why do pictures become blurry when you have little light? Simply because it takes more time to expose the sensor so you have enough light to record a picture. And the longer the exposure is, the more likely your hand is to shake. That's why professional photographers always carry at least a monopod with them when they know they're going to take pictures in low light. When I went into the abandoned hospital a few years ago, I brought a tripod specifically because I knew there would be no light, there would be no electrical power. So the only way to take good pictures was to take longer exposures. And some places were so dark that an exposure took as long as 20 seconds. And the only way to make that still was to use a tripod. I could have never gotten away with that by holding the camera in my hand. There's no stabilization other than a tripod in cases like that. But the more artistic of you will say it's an art, which it is. Photography is, for all intents and purposes, an artistic endeavor, or at least most of the times it is. So I suppose we could say that it's an artistic technique. It takes both technical and artistic skills to master. But before it became an art, it took science to get to photography the way we know it. Even though the origins of optics are very old, the ancient Greeks already knew about the, the pinhole. That is, a very small hole, just like a pinhole, that lets light through will generate a reversed image on the other side. And later on, in ancient China, they already used the camera obscura, that is the darkroom, to project this image, even before lenses were discovered or invented, depending on how you look at it. Leonardo da Vinci himself used that. And during the whole Renaissance period, many painters used the little trick of using a small portable darkroom to project the image so that they could trace the contours of what they were going to paint. And you can probably tell that we're getting into dangerous territory here. Is that cheating? I don't know. <laughs> Is it? Because we're still talking about someone who traced the contours of something and then painted with actual colors. So you may say, well, it's half cheating. Because, well, you know, the contours are being copied, but the painting is still done manually. So it's not completely cheating. Fair enough. But moving on with time, we get to the 18th century, the first half of it. And that's when photography, the way we know it today, became real. And we do have a copy of the oldest photograph still in existence. And many people probably never thought about this. What was the first photograph of? 
Now you may think, well, it must be something epic, you know? Let's say we were in London, that should be the Tower Bridge. Or if we're in Paris, it's the Eiffel Tower. Well, truth is, it was nothing that epic. I'll tell you why before telling you what it is. Suppose you're working on a machine that's able to record thoughts. That's just as science fiction-ish as photography probably felt at the time. So the first time it actually works, what do you think it's going to record? It's not going to be something great. It's not going to be a message to humanity. It's probably going to be something like, I hope this works. Or, I really need to clean this lab. Or, I don't know, something along those lines anyway. Because you kind of don't expect it to work. You've made a lot of attempts up to the point that you're just kind of disheartened. So you're just making it's just one more test. And this French guy, whose name was Nieps, I swear that's the way it is pronounced. I looked it up before recording this. He just took a photo of what he saw from his window. And it's just rooftops. So the oldest photograph in existence is a boring picture of rooftops. It's kind of like Instagram 1.0. But still, that was a milestone and that opened the gates to modern photography. Even though it took more effort and more work to make it commonplace and to make it accessible to everyone or almost everyone, simply because the problem was not projecting the image as we've seen that was already being done, that had already been done for centuries really. The difficulty was recording, was the graphy part of photography. The light part was easy, it was the recording that was difficult. So it took a lot of mingling with chemicals, with equipment, in order to make a picture that was actually stable and would stay stable. That's the main issue. But it relatively quickly became commonplace. Of course, it was very expensive, it was difficult to use, it was not point and shoot. Cameras were big, heavy. Uh, the plates themselves were really heavy and expensive and fragile. Buying a camera was not for everybody. It was expensive and you had to know how to use it and also how to develop pictures because you couldn't just go to a chemist and drop the roll. You had to do it yourself. So it was a very complicated ordeal, but it slowly became commonplace. Now, at the time, everything was black and white. And even though there were early experiments with color, it was not until the 1900s, actually close to the half of the 1900s, that color film became really accessible. As cameras themselves became simpler, more reliable, and even the film itself became more standardized. Photography went from using a really huge paper sheet-sized plate, glass plates, to the common roll of film that we are used to, or at least the older generations are used to. And the smaller film became the standard mostly because of photojournalists who needed something more affordable and more practical than the bigger films of medium format cameras that were and are still in use today. Now let's take a step back, because as photography became commonplace, or at least re relatively so, everyone who was working with it also became an experimenter with it. Since they had to do their own developing, either by accident or on purpose, they would just fiddle with it. Like, why do I have to keep this 30 seconds into the chemical bath? What if I keep it for a minute or a quarter of a minute? What result do I get? And as you may imagine, that actually changed the result that they would get. Not only that, but some people started experimenting with double exposures or printing over other prints magnifying or reducing items or objects or people or animals. So in a sense, photo edits have always existed for as long as photography itself has existed. Just like painting was not necessarily realistic. Salvador Dali comes to mind. 
Picasso comes to mind. Nothing about them was realistic. The difference here is that people expected photography to be real. Even today, we still take that for granted. When we snap a picture, we are recording reality the way it is. And back in the day, just like the legend of the Lumiere brothers a few years later, scaring people who thought that the train that was being projected on a wall was going to come out of the wall for real and people ran away. That's a legend that never really happened. But a lot of people kind of took it for granted that photography itself was real. And this is exemplified in a wonderful movie called Nuovo Mondo. The English title is The Golden Door. And it tells the story of a family of poor farmers from Sicily at the beginning of the 20th century. And I got these postcards from America depicting huge chickens bigger than men. Or rivers with cookies in them. And of course, in their ignorance, in their blissful ignorance, they thought it was real. Because hey, photography didn't lie. If there is a photo of this, it must be real. But going back to the photo edits, as I was saying, those started happening the moment photography itself started happening. And as time went by, the array of things you could do to pictures to make them less realistic grew exponentially. Just cross-processing, for instance, has been used and is still being used by people who enjoy uh, fiddling with film to get weird effects. Cross-processing just means that you use a different processing for the film than the one you're supposed to use with that film. For instance, if you have a negative film, a traditional film, you're supposed to use a specific kind of processing to get an actual negative. But you may want to use a different processing, such as the one that's normally reserved to reversible film, that is the one that gives you slides, so that the colors are going to be different. And that kind of thing has been used and is still being used, as I said. So there's a lot of things you can do with film. Getting something that's not completely realistic is not necessarily something exclusive to digital photography, even though digital photography makes it much easier. And this has led some people to join a movement, so to speak, an artistic movement of sorts, that finds pride in not editing photos at all. They take pictures with digital cameras and they will not edit them at all. And they usually will post them by tagging them SOOC, straight out of camera. And that's something that I used to do back in the day. But I quickly realized that I was just fooling myself for one very simple reason. Every single photo you see is unique, literally, because nobody is going to be at the very same spot, both in space and in time, as the one who took that picture. And even if they were, they probably would not be using the very same combination of camera, lens, focal length, aperture, shutter speed, there are so many variables. But still, even if two people, even if two photographers are side by side, and use the very same equipment, the pictures are going to be different because they're not exactly in the same spot. So every single photo you take is unique to yourself. Actually, every single photo anyone takes is unique in general. It's just not possible for any other photo to be just the same as another in the whole universe, really. So by taking pride in not editing your photos, you're just saying, okay, I've got this camera who can do this for me. You may be framing, you may be pressing the shutter button, but it's the camera doing the work. At that point, anyone else could be in your place. It wouldn't be really personal, right? And let's face it, most cameras, all cameras, really, are just not able to capture light the way our eyes see them. And everyone has noticed this, even just with cell phone cameras, when they're trying to take a photo of someone against a bright backlight, the camera will either show a silhouette 
against a properly exposed background or they will take a good photo of the person on a completely washed out white background. Because the sensor is just unable to record both, whereas our eyes are able to see both kinds of light. And the, way, the only way to make photos more realistic that is working around this limitation is to use post-processing techniques. And post-processing can take a lot of shapes. You may just improve the exposure because your camera messed up or because it, it was just impossible to record it properly. That's what I do. It's called tone mapping. I try to replicate what I saw with my eyes when my camera is unable to give me that. And even though I have a very good camera, it's just a limitation of current technology. You only have that much dynamic range. Sometimes I even blend different photos at different exposures so that I get a high dynamic range. That's called HDR. Now, even cell phones do that on their own, but if you do it manually with properly exposed pictures, you get much more room to tweak that. And I do that to make my photos more realistic. So the question is, am I cheating the viewers of my photos? And am I cheating the viewers of my photo shoots when I remove blemishes on my model's face? Where is the line? Where is the line between cheating and improving a picture. That's really the core of the matter and you have to think about it because there are so many things that photography is not real about. The very own lens you use is going to most likely not make it real. The human eye has a field of view that's more or less equivalent to a 42 millimeter lens on a 35 millimeter sensor or film. So anytime you use a focal length that's different, that's either shorter so you get a wider field of view or longer so you get a narrow field of view. In other words, if you zoom out or zoom in, you're doing something that's not real. If you're using a longer exposure to take pictures of, of a waterfall, for instance, you don't get the waterfall the way you see it. It becomes milky. By the same token, if you use a very high speed, you may be able to freeze the image in such a way that the human eye cannot see. Is that cheating? Most people would say no, because it's just a different approach. It actually lets you see more. You're not faking what's in the picture. You're just allowing to see more. In fact, many people will say, well, no, that, that's actually a bonus. That's not, uh, that's not taking from it. You're adding to it by letting us see something that our eyes, the way we're built, make it impossible for us to see. How about adding a border to the photo, either on the digital file or in a frame? Is that cheating? Most people would say no. But let me play devil's advocate here for a second. Sometimes adding a border of a different color will change the perception of the picture, especially with black and white. If you add a white border around a black and white picture, the image itself usually will pop a little more. And black and white itself, isn't that cheating? We see in color. The moment we remove all the color information, we are effectively working with a picture that's not real anymore. And there are so many ways of going black and white that most people don't realize. Most people who are not photographers just think that going black and white means removing color, which is true. When you go from more data, such as color, to less data, such as no color, that is just light information, going from black to white, that's what it is, that's why it's called black and white, you always have to map the values, the original values to the resulting values. You have to apply a mathematical function, if you will. But you can map them. Every single photo editing program, Lightroom, Photoshop, Aperture, every single one of them will let you go from color to black and white 
in such a way that lets you define every single original color to a specific shade which will then further be multiplied by the original luminance value but still there are effectively countless ways of going from color to black and white and I cannot even begin to tell you how many times I spend more time processing a color picture into a black and white picture just because of that compared to just editing the color image for me working in color is easier it's more natural going black and white gives me so much artistic freedom that sometimes I'm taken aback because going black and white requires a different line of thought that I'm used to and sometimes it just takes me more time to get the right black and white picture out of a color picture but again black and white is not natural is that cheating am I cheating in general if I make a color picture black and white or do I start cheating the moment I start tweaking the colors just the way I've said if I make the grass darker instead of lighter or vice versa compared to the sky am I cheating keep in mind there is no standard black and white there is no such thing as black and white you may think well the way the film used to do it even that was arbitrary in a sense in fact old-school photographers had a bunch of color filter that they just screwed on top of the lens so that they would do exactly that red filters to darken the sky I think I'm not sure about that exactly orange filters yellow filters just to let them get what today we do in post-processing well they had to do it while they were taking the picture unless they wanted to have full control during the development but still with photography if you start from a good picture it's gonna be much easier to work in it later on that's that's always been true and that will always be true but again is black and white cheating and I'm pretty sure that by now you're like hmm I don't know is it and with landscape photography that's even a bigger issue because where is the line between minor tweaks and unacceptable edits if I'm taking a photo of a wonderful landscape and I have a very annoying phone wire that just gets in the way if I edit it out am I cheating sometimes you just don't have the opportunity of moving or avoiding that in the frame as I said taking a good picture to begin with is always better but sometimes you don't have that choice sometimes you cannot move past the obstacle and even if you do you may get a different perspective than what you wanted so sometimes the only option to get a picture you wanted is to edit things out is that acceptable or is that cheating and as you can see there are so many variables to take into account when it comes to this kind of thing but the question remains when does a photo become a fraud there have been cases in which professional photographers have been stripped of awards after cases like this came to light no pun intended for instance uh, there has been a wildlife photographer who was stripped of an award because it turns out that the wonderful picture of, of a wolf he had taken was staged there are photojournalists who were fired when it became known that they had posed the people in war zones to get a more dramatic shot the concept of fraud with photography is really borderline now my personal opinion as a photographer I do post-processing and I think there is nothing wrong with it I do post-processing to enhance pictures in order to give the emotion that I was feeling when I was taking that picture when I take a picture I already have an idea of what eventually I'm going for even though it may take some work generally speaking I strive to to let the viewer feel the same way I felt when I was taking that photo and sometimes that means editing the photo in such a way that I will be able to represent what I was seeing because the camera itself will just give you a flat image it's very neutral it's very mechanical it's just a machine it doesn't have a soul 
but I have a vision for what that picture is going to become eventually. So I do that, sometimes going out of my way, but I try to replicate what was in my mind the moment I took that photo, so that visually speaking, I'm reminded of that. And ideally, someone who sees the picture is going to get the same feeling. I think that the line between fraud and artistic liberty really lies with intention. And by that I mean, why am I taking this picture? What story am I telling? Am I giving you the impression that I'm telling the truth? This really applies to photojournalism more than anything else. If I'm taking a photo around town and I edit a parked car out of the picture, that doesn't change the story that much. I never said, I'm going to show you exactly the way things were the moment I took the photo. I've never told you that. So if I remove something, I can do it. I'm allowed to do it. Nobody can tell me this is fake. You've showed me something that's not real. And that's not because no one else was there to prove that, but rather because I've never made such a bold statement. A photojournalist, on the other hand, is supposed not to edit photos because he's supposed to tell the real story, the way things were, to let me make my own mind on what was happening that moment. When, when an artistic photographer, so to speak, takes a picture, that's just the first step. Unless you subscribe to the straight-out-of-camera crowd, which really means that you're denying yourself the chance of telling the whole story, you're just not bound by anything. You're not bound by an oath or anything else that forces you not to change the way the picture looks in any way. It becomes different the moment someone goes to tell a story and claims, yes, this is really the way it is. A journalist, as I said, or someone just doing any kind of documentary photography, even doing urban exploration, like the one I did when I went into the hospital. In that case, I only tweaked the colors so that I could represent the way it felt. But I didn't change, I didn't add things, I didn't remove things, because I was documenting the state of that abandoned building. So to wrap this up, anyone can make their own opinion about this, but I hope I gave you some pointers about deciding when a picture becomes a fraud or not. And again, I'm not really talking about those heavily edited pictures that have become something else after so much work. I'm talking about traditional photography, but even traditional photography is an art, as we have agreed at the beginning of the episode. So I don't think I'm lying to my viewers if I make a sky bluer in one of my photos or if I remove a phone wire in another. After all, I'm just telling them a story. A story that I never promised would be true. And on that note, we can conclude today's episode. And just like last time, I would like to thank every single person who took the time to listen to this, to recommend this to others, to let me know what I thought about this, and generally speaking, for encouraging me to do this. Anyone who wants to get in touch with me can do so by going to the website amenbonesyndrome.com and on top you will find a link that says contact. You just open that, there is a contact form, and you can just send me a message on there. For now, goodbye, and as usual, stay human. The music used in this episode is Look Busy and Porch Swing Days by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com.